0: the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1412, WBSN presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Crowley.
1: Mickey South Coast and Weisberg here, along with the asylum assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, back after a two-week hiatus. Kind of an unplanned two-week hiatus. We knew we were going to miss last week because we were at a Legend Trips event at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But the week before that, Mother Nature decided to give us the night off, which was nice of her. Right. I don't know what you guys did on your night off, but I just kind of relaxed and watched a movie. Yep. I wasn't uh I wasn't too keen on going out that night with the way the snow was coming right. down. You just watched the the snow pile up outside. That's about it. That's really lame. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I had known I would well, have invited you over. Still? Ever? No. Like you're never gonna get cable? I'm against it. You do know you could just steal it from your next door neighbor. Try I
2: again. I'm not stealing nothing nothing from this guy.
0: I highly recommend you don't
1: try. So <laughs> so really there's nobody on Mike three? Ever. Okay. Good to know. That's something. <laughs> uh, nice to learn. So uh, I think that we've got everybody working now. So M- Moniz, you just hung out and you did nothing on your night off? Nothing. And there goes your microphone again. And now Derek shows up right when we start the show and wants to be let in. So. All right. Yeah, your mic's not working anyway. So We'll figure out while you're gone, we'll figure out which number it is. <sighs> nothing like uh, coming after we've already started the show? Derek? We'll give him crap about that when he gets in. That's fine. So uh, last uh, Saturday night, we had a Legend Trips event at the Lizzie Boyden Bed and Breakfast. It is our annual Dead of Winter event. We have Dead of Winter and Dead of Summer. And, uh, you you know, sometimes you go there and you just walk in and you're like, okay, this is going to be a good night here. And I was kind of getting that feeling a little bit when we first arrived. Uh, first of all, we had a great crowd, you know, sold out as always. Uh, and the people that were there were really energetic, and they they right. seemed to really be ready for this night, and they seemed to be ready to have uh, what was going to be uh, a pretty memorable evening. So when the, you have that kind of electricity already, you're going in there with the expectation of something big is going to happen. You know, we've got enough energy coming in this room that something big is going to happen. And... I had a few instances happen. I was on the third floor. I know, Matt Costa, you were kind of um, floating back and forth yeah, yeah. Uh, throughout the course of the night. Monies, we'll try again. We'll figure out which microphone you're on. You know what? I'm just going to turn them all on. Might as well. Then we'll figure it out from there. All right. Hello? There we can hear you there now. There he is. So um, you have an inline adjuster on your headphones. If you can't hear yourself, try that. That might help you out a little bit. So uh, you were in the basement throughout the course of the evening, too. Yes, I was. And uh, I didn't really get a chance to talk to you about what was going on, if you had any activity taking place on your floor. Uh, no, nothing
0: spectacular. Uh, I know that there was activity through the rest of the house, but usually when uh, activity happens in there, it's happening
1: all night. Right. And uh, what, did you talk with Andy about what was going on on the first floor? No, I didn't get a chance to. It was, uh, for me, on the third floor, you know, it was the usual. People had their legs lifted. And uh, at the same time, we also caught a pretty interesting audio clip, which I'm hoping the person who caught it will send to us. Uh, she's she's on vacation right now, but when she gets back, hopefully she'll send it into to us. We were in the chimney room. I hate when my phone does this. We were in the chimney room, and the uh, all of us were kind of centered around the bed, the Hosea Nolten room, and we heard what sounded, it was a female voice. It sounded like a female human woman's voice, and but it sounded like a sheep bleeding. You know, like, meh, like that type of noise. Mm. And so we all heard it. And we're like, where did that come from? It came from, like, right next to you here in the room. Because when you're on that third floor, of course, in that in that Nolten room, you're right over the John Morse room, which is where all the activities happen on the second floor. And by, by activity, I mean, that's where all the people are gathered. So you were, you'd be expecting that you would hear some of that bleeding through. And I can tell you, I spend most of my time at Lizzie Borden's house for these Legend Trips events laying on the floor of that room you know, watching people's legs get lifted. If an individual oh, student app, really. watching people's legs get lifted up, and when that happens, you know I can hear the discussion happening in the next room when I'm that close to the floor. However, this was not like that. This was directly in the room with us, so it was a pretty cool catch.
0: Well, we've had that experience before a couple of times, and right. Uh, well. Doing our own little investigations and non-legend tripping events.
1: where we had, a, uh, we had what sounded like a, a growl happen in that room right in the well, corner.
0: Everybody had their own interpretation of what they heard, but we all heard something. And,
1: and nobody caught it on the the five recorders that were running in the room. Yes. The uh, the other interesting thing, of course, is always the leg lifts. And we had a few people who were skeptical about that who had that happen to them. Uh, so that was pretty unique. Matt, what happened where you were? Any, anything good going on? Um, no, uh, I stayed on uh, the second floor, kind of
2: with uh, with Jeff. Kind of uh, checked out the uh, connect system. Anything pop up on that at all? No, nothing. I thought I thought we might get something because I would have thought that
1: would have been the place right, to have it right. happen.
2: Uh, we had a um, a guest. Um, we were doing some Ouija board work, and she she needed to leave. She kind kind of got a little um, uh, overwhelmed, so I had to go out and help her with that. But. Um, Thankfully, she was okay.
0: I think the Kinect was on the wrong floor, in my personal yeah. opinion. I don't think it would have. I, I wanted
2: to see it in the basement, to be honest
1: That's, what
0: that's I, where I, I, I would have liked to. And,
1: and Jeff and I talked you know? about this uh, you know, during the course of the event. We're going to go back some night when it's just us, and yes. Jeff's going to come down. He's going to bring the Kinect system. We're going to set it up in the basement, and we're going to let it run all night down there. Because that's where Moniz and I saw that shadow figure yep. mm-hmm. uh, repeatedly. And then maybe we can even run it maybe also uh, up on the third floor where Leanne recently had an experience, yep. uh, in which a shadow stopped and ran right by her on the staircase. I was going to say, why don't we put it on the first floor by the back door there and face it up the staircase? There's lots of different places where yeah. we could try that, uh, but I, I definitely want to make sure we put it in the basement. Yes, because that will be uh, remember those college for us. kids. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was funny. And they were blown away by it. And we weren't yeah. even that. We just stopped in to say hi on the yeah. anniversary. We were just like, just we were in the neighborhood, thought we'd come. Because we were actually, we were down the street yep. at the uh, at the Quaggishan Club. Club yeah. And we just happened to stop in. And it turned out to be one of our most profound experiences there. So pretty interesting stuff. And if you would like to go on a Legend, Trips events, w- a Legend Trips event with us, we do have just six tickets remaining for the Mark Twain House coming up on April 12th. And this is a place that nobody has ever been allowed to have. A paranormal event there. People are trying to get in there again and again. Uh, You know, it's hard when you're a historical organization to let in just anybody off the street. You don't know who to trust in the field. But The name Legend Trips has already begun to mean something in the historical community. They know what we're all about. We've raised just about $20,000 now to help benefit these historic haunts. So they know that when Legend Trips comes knocking, not only are you going to make a, a pretty good chunk of change for a night's work, but you're also going to be bringing in quality individuals because all of our guests, of course, they have the respect for the location. And they care more just as much about the history as they do the haunting. So... There's only six tickets left for that. They're $99 each. You, they include dinner. They include a historical tour. Uh, they include hours of guided investigation. We'll have the Xbox Connect system there. We'll have all the tools that we use there. Uh, you never know what kind of crazy experiments we're going to come up with. Uh, also, we will have, uh, on that particular night, we have a, a hotel deal. For $99, you can get a hotel room at the uh, Holiday Inn and Express right there in Hartford, about two miles from the Mark Twain house. And apparently it's a big deal that not only do you get free breakfast, but you get free parking included Mm -hmm. with that room because a lot of those hotels down there, they charge for parking because there is no... On street parking, you're in downtown, downtown Hartford, so they charge to get into their lots and their garages. Well, the parking and the breakfast are included. Free Wi-Fi in your room. Uh, what a great deal for ninety-nine dollars. That's like twenty dollars or thirty dollars off the regular price for that night. So uh, there's a very limited amount of rooms available too. Uh, and If you need that information, I sent out an email to all the people uh, already attending the event. Uh, but if you need that information, you can always email me timatspookysouthcoast.com uh, to find out more. So there's, again, six tickets remaining for the Mark Twain House event. They'll be gone by next week, I'm sure. However, we also did just announce in pre sale our next event, which I'm not going to give away the location on the air, but it's in Massachusetts. It's up, up near the New Hampshire border. So it will be a little bit of a hike for us. But for a lot of our regular legend trippers, they get to stay close to home. And it's a place that not a lot of paranormal investigators have been in yet. They've only been allowing people in for investigations for the last year and a half. And there's already been a great amount of uh, information coming out about the haunts that are going on there. And there's there's definitely a female presence in this location that does not want people in certain rooms and on certain floors. So this might turn into a a pretty good challenge here this night, uh, trying to contend with with this spirit and being able to investigate this house. So that has been announced in pre-sale. So if you are on the Legend Trips email list, if you have ever been to one of our events, or if you went to the website legendtrips.com and signed up, you should have received that email. Uh, I sent it out on Friday afternoon, and it has the link to purchase your tickets before they are on sale to the general public. Again, those tickets also $99, which is where we try to keep all of our events. Uh, And we will have a hotel deal announced for that shortly uh, as well, I'm sure. But for right now, if you are interested in going, make sure you snatch up those tickets because they are limited. And uh, we will be putting them on sale to the general public this week. So by next week's show, we'll be able to reveal that location uh, to people. But I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, I get excited about all of our Legend Trips events. But I see these photos that Frank Grace takes of these places that he goes to. And I say, wow, each one just looks even more cooler than the one before it. So... Uh, I'm pretty amped up, and we're trying to find a lot more new locations this year. So if you have any suggestions of where we can go legend tripping, you can send them to us, uh, info at com, and uh, we'll be sure to check. Usually we send Frank out as our advance man, you know, because he loves to go out and take photos of these places. So he'll come back and let us know uh, how they are. All right, well, why don't we do a little bit of our strange and unusual news before we get into our discussion with tonight's guest, Derek Gunn. Hello, Derek. Just wanted to say hello. Hey, Guys, good to see everybody. Didn't mean to ignore you here, no, but we, no, we're no, just no. rambling on. No,
3: do your thing. We'll get to our thing in a little while.
1: Absolutely. We're going to talk about some really strange stuff tonight, so you're not going to want to miss that. And you can also call in to the show at any point, five oh eight 996-0500-877-996-1420. I want to say hello to all of the new listeners. We gained a ton of new listeners, I'm sure, tonight uh, after the kind retweets from the one and only Chris Jericho uh, about Spooky South Coast after Jeff Belanger, our good friend and our partner in Legend Trips, was on Talk is Jericho and... If if you don't listen to that podcast, I highly recommend that you do. It's not just about the wrestling world, like a lot of people may think. Uh, there's a lot of information there about the entertainment industry, about sports, uh, about general life stuff. And he had Jeff Belanger on as his guest talking about ghosts uh, this past week. And what a great show they did. Uh, you know, I'm nervous here. I tweeted out I've been doing this for almost ten years now. And, and Chris Jericho is just as good at it in one hour as I have been in ten years. So, hey... That's fine with me. the The guy's good at everything that he does. So uh, go and check that out. I gotta say, it blew my mind to hear Chris Jericho plugging Legend Trips. That was just insane to hear him say right. that people should go to legendtrips.com dot com and check out all the events. Man, <laughs> it's, it, it really was like I couldn't believe it. I was driving in my car when I was listening, and I almost had to pull over. I was like, here's one of my favorite people, and you know, one of my favorite entertainers, uh, and he's talking about. Legend trips. So it just goes to show you, you know? It's nice to, nice to get
3: a, a Jericho bump, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I don't mind it at all. Uh, you know, and if he wants to come on this show, he's welcome anytime. So I'm, I'm sure he's listening now. Alright, it's time, I think, for us to get a little weird. If that's, is that alright with you guys? We get a little weird? Do it. Alright, let's do it.
0: More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. was so wonderful? Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird.
1: <laughs> the Weekend Weird. All right, well, we have some stories here to talk about. Uh, most of them come from The Weekend Weird on our Twitter feed. You can just follow us on Twitter at SpookySC. You can also check out the Week and Weird page on SpookySouthCoast.com. This is a story that everybody was sending me this week. A South Texas family claimed they shot and killed the infamous chupacabra after coming face to face with the strange coyote-like animal on their property. Doug Ort and family were at home in Victoria County Ranch Sunday night when they heard a chilling howl. Be quiet, there, commercial. <laughs> Uh, My grandson ran outside and shot him from about 240 yards, said the 79-year-old Ort. It's mangy-looking, and it's got long hair on the back and on the hair on its legs. Uh, The grandkids said, oh, that's a chupacabra, he said. Well, that that explains it right there. I mean, why contact Lauren Coleman when your grandkids can just tell you? The chupacabra is said to closely resemble a coyote, but with a skinny, hairless body and patches of mangy hair. It also has a reputation for sucking the blood from livestock, hence its name meaning goat sucker in Spanish. So they've been hearing howls uh, about this time, about that time of night for the past year or so. There have been numerous other sightings over the years of, of the Chupacabra. But, you know, here's the thing. I, I looked at some of the photos of this online. It looks like a mangy coyote.
0: Well, they say it's a cross between the coyote and one of the Mexican hairless dogs. So, um, a, is
3: that, is that a, considered some type of coy dog or something? Is that what that is?
0: Yeah, it's a, something that is... Like a mixture of stuff that they've done genetic tests on. It is a member of the canine family.
1: I'm just surprised that these people didn't eat it. Uh, after reading the story, I'm surprised that uh, it wasn't served up Texas Chainsaw Massacre style. Pretty good shot
0: at 250 yards, though.
1: Well, it doesn't say how old the kid is, but you know, you never know. Matt Costa, I know that you wanted to. I, I know that I you did. put this story up for I, sure. I, I, did. I, did. I did. You want some kitten with that coffee? The San Francisco Bay Area is getting the United States' first and second cat cafes. So first not only the are they getting it, the first, they're getting, they're getting two cat cafes. A feline phenomenon by way of Japan that reimagines cafes as oases where patrons can kick back with a hot drink and a resident cat.
2: Jeez.
1: The Kit Tea in San Francisco and Cat Town Cafe in Oakland are both in the planning stages, but will function slightly differently. Health code's allowing the two cafes are hoping for 2014 openings. Kit Tea will be a halfway home for adoptable cats and is partnered with two shelters to populate the cafe. Its founders haven't nailed down a location yet, but aim to provide a relaxing alternative to bustling coffee shops and bring the stress-relieving properties of pet ownership and catnip-infused tea to visitors. so Cat Town will also focus on adoptions and will welcome anyone in for free playtime. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to get a cat to go anywhere, but it doesn't go well. No,
2: they're, they're kind of uppity. They don't like to do
1: anything. <laughs> they, they, you can't get them to go into the cat carrier. If you try to bring them out on a leash, forget it. They just <laughs> dig their claws in and refuse to go. I, just, I, I I, don't think the promise of tea and scones will get my cat to leave the house.
2: <laughs> I, I did used to go to a bar that had cats. That <laughs> so. killed us? Maybe.
1: <laughs> and it was very. It was a very relaxing atmosphere. Right.
0: And, and remember her old dog that you
1: Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's a shrine to the dog. How can to, you forget?
2: He used to drool on you. Just yeah. Drool.
1: Uh, it's, I don't know which bigger, the shrine to the dog or to her husband. <laughs> it, no, really. Wait, yeah. I'm serious. All right. So, uh, yeah. So the cat cafes are coming to the Bay Area. Uh, I cannot wait to get out there and try and... That sounds true You put that up there just so you can use I that did. joke. Oh, man. The cat is out of the bag now, I you hey, okay. All right, and here's one more story. The official center of the world is, of course, in California. Not where the cat cafes are coming, but no, it's the town called Felicity. It was deemed the actual official center of the world, and there's a plaque there to commemorate it started by a Frenchman named Jacques-André Etel. The town has almost a handful of residents, but you can stop and check out the site only from December through March. You have to call ahead to make sure they're open. It's just another one of those weird, bizarre roadside stops, the exact perfect center of the world in Felicity, California, proving Mm -hmm. what the TV show tried to convince us of for so many seasons, that Felicity is indeed the center of everyone's universe. Right. I never saw that show. Me either. But I just I've started My question it, is, how did, did they to decide day?
3: that to be the center?
1: I think because they put up a plaque, and everybody just I assumed they we were correct. It, is Because it,
3: it can't be based on landmass,
1: right? It's I was going to say, the the
0: be, be, based on landmass, the exact center of all landmasses is see actually uh, a plateau, strangely enough.
1: Let's see if there's any explanation. Hmm, I'm looking here, well, but it's I, don't the see, criteria, uh, so I don't see that. I don't see that. But... If you go and stand on the exact spot, you get a certificate from a town official, and you get to make a wish. That's you, can, you can also pay $200 and have your name inscribed on the wall for the ages. So, Yeah, it sounds like a, a groovy, happy town named you know, Felicity, meaning happiness, of course. But... Sounds more like a tourist trap to get oh. you to spend 200 bucks on having your name put on a wall. But hey, whatever. If you ever are in the town of Felicity, California, just know that you are in the exact center of someone's universe. (laughs) All right, that does it for the Week in Weird for this week. If you have any stories you would like to share with us, you can just tweet them to us, at SpookySC. And Matt will retweet them out there and collect them up on the Week in Weird page on SpookySouthCoast.com. And you will be able to tell all of your friends. Hey, I got retweeted by the show that got retweeted by Chris Jericho. There you go. Each week we're getting progressively more incentivized and and, delivering the weekend weird to us. All right. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we will get right into the conversation with tonight's guest, Derek Gunn. You can check out his website by going to our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be back in just a few moments with more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Hello, ghosts. Come in, ghosts. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening. Oh, great! Odin's raven. Beaming from the studios of AM fourteen twenty WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast.
1: My ringtone now on my phone. That's awesome. Yeah, it be everybody's. I didn't really know where I wanted to start it either. Yeah. I didn't know what the best part was, so I just went right with the beginning. It's hard, dude. but you know you don't get to hear the whole song. Well, yeah. I know you don't want to pick up the phone when it's somebody. We're just having a radio show here. That's all right. yeah, uh, we, uh, yeah we're, we're actually we're back on the air. It's all right, you you can do whatever you have to do, Derek. Where where now we're here whenever you're ready. <laughs> all right, joining us tonight is Derek A Gun. The A stands for awesome because he came all the way down here to the studio. No, I'm not talking to you phone. This is going to be like a regular segment on Sorry, the show. Alexi. I might yeah. legally change my name from Alexander to awesome after that. I like that. I think, I think there's now precedent. So if you go before the judge. That was very kind. Thank it's, you. Uh, but uh, you are kind enough to come all the way down here. I know it's a bit of a hike for you. Yeah, not bad. But uh, it always works better you know, when we can see each other face to face, especially when we're going to be talking about you know, the wealth of information that we'll be discussing tonight I haven't seen you since uh, since we went to some of these Bridgewater Triangle screenings. I haven't been to any since the Bridgewater State College one. Uh, I don't know if you've had the chance to go to some more of them. Oh, yeah. I've been to uh, several now. Uh, let's see. I went to the last one was the Dedham Community
3: Theater. Before mm-hmm. that, I went to several at the um, the Alley Theater in Middleborough, which okay. was a, it's a nice little theater. It's a great – I mean, both of them were not very nice, but the, the Alley Theater is a little, a little small, a little more intimate. I think it maybe holds 100 people. And uh, it's been some good Q&As afterwards with some of, the, some of the people from the film.
1: That's what I've been hearing. I've been hearing that as, as there's more and more showings, uh, there's a lot of repeat people who are coming to see the film again, and they're coming armed with more questions that they've put together in the time between screenings. Uh, has it been, it seems like it's been warmly received everywhere it's been. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's, I mean, it keeps selling out in Middleborough, I know that, and
3: uh it was funny. The last one I went to, I think it was February 9th, it was the one in Dedham. And, you know, in the movie, I'm principally there, kind of the rock stuff, the fringe archaeology stuff. Um, but usually... In Middleborough, it was mostly ghost questions and things like that. Or people relating their own experiences that they had strange things happen to them or their, their aunt or something? In uh, Dedham that night, it was wild. It was people asking me about uh, King Philip's Rock and Sharon and, and Chambers. It was like a lot of rock questions. Uh, nice. You know, so you song. were the rock star that I night. Was, yeah, it was It was a good night. It was. It was actually like a... It was kind
1: of a night geared towards me, so it was, it was nice. You know? Well, we had Aaron on a few weeks ago, and he mentioned that, um, you know, there does seem to be almost a theme that runs through some of the questions in the Q&A sessions depending on where they are, and that sometimes there will be a very ghost-heavy night. Sometimes it will just be a night of people who want to share their own experiences and, and say what's happened to them and what strange things they found in the triangle. So uh, the important thing is that each time it's being shown, there's more and more people that feel comfortable discussing this, and they're going to go to work the next day or to school or whatever, and they're going to tell everybody, Hey, I saw this film last night, and they're going to keep the discussion rolling. And before you know it, you know it'll just be something that we can all talk about freely, instead of having to just keep to ourselves on these weird radio shows and websites like we do. I I think that um, what I've noticed is that, um, you know, well, Matt
3: and Aaron put up that section of the website, the Bridgewater Triangle documentary website, where you you can relate your own experiences and share. Mm -hmm. So that was a great idea because I think that they've already had you know multiple stories put up that no one would know about except for this movie. So you know, someone had an experience. And um, they probably told people, you know, in the immediate, you know, circle of whatever of, of connections. And then now it's on the internet, and people are sharing. You know what I mean? And more information is getting out there. So, so.
1: and this movie is being seen, uh, you know, worldwide now. And we should point out we've done a few pay-per-views uh, on Spooky TV, and now they've been able to make it available as an on-demand uh, viewing on Vimeo, so you can purchase it through Vimeo and get it. You know, much better quality, and uh, you'll have it for a 48-hour rental. So there's another option for people to be able to uh, experience the film and see it. And to, you know, I I have friends, uh, people who listen to the show across the country, across the world, and they're dying to see the movie, but they can't make it out to any of these screenings locally. And of course, the the problem with the the live streams that we did with the pay-per-view streams is, again, you have to be right in front of the computer at that time. So now with this Vimeo option, they'll be able to watch it. Anytime they want to, uh, in the comfort of their own home or, or wherever they choose to watch it and they'll be able to watch it on their own schedule. So, uh, you can go to the BridgewaterTriangledocumentary.com to find out more about that. But now, are you seeing an increase in interest in your work now that the film has started to, to hit? I think so. I've noticed
3: that, you know, when I check out my website and the numbers, things are growing. Definitely. You know, the, the trend is going up.
1: Now, we all seem to have our different uh, niches that we found within the discussion of the Bridgewater Triangle. You know, I talk a lot about the big picture stuff, and I talk a lot about the ghost stuff. Moniz is a go-to guy for the crypto stuff, for the uh, UFO stuff. Uh, And, of course, you've got John Brightman, who's out there, boots to the ground, talking a lot about the cult activity. Everybody seems to have found their own thing. And you mentioned, of course, that you are known as the rock guy. But, I mean, how would you describe your work in this field to people overall, not just what's featured in the Triangle document? Uh, overall, I would say you know the the satanic cult stuff, and
3: that's that. My, my interest in my research is very weak on that stuff. That's not that's not my kind of thing at all. Um, and I'm, it's fine. People are into it. That's you know everyone has a different. Like you said, there that they're, they're, they're uh, right. No, you're scared. Areas. You can say <clears throat> you're scared. I just no, my, myself. Can. I've always been interested. Actually, I mean, I have a lot of overlap with a lot of you guys. I mean, I, when I got interested in all this back around 92, 93, it started from like the Westford Knight and lead led into like the Dighton Rock type stuff. But very quickly, when I was doing books on Archaeological oddities. You get mentions of the, the cryptids, sea serpents, lake monsters, um, just what you call It. You don't even know what to call. Um, and I have a strong interest in ufology and, uh, and a lot of stuff. Kind of. I, I I kind of steal my thinking. Really, kind of kind of comes from John Keel a lot. Mm-hmm. I Mentioned him the last time I was with you guys. I really like John Keel's thinking on this about the extraterrestrials and how all these oddities might be sort of coming from a similar source but manifest differently to different people. Right. And um, so I mean, I'm kind of especially in this movie, because that's what the section I'm in, I'm kind of known as, like, the fringe archaeology guy. In the, and, and I love that department. That's really what got me into all these oddities. But, I mean, really, you know, to go way backwards here, I got into this, and I think I mentioned this last time, too, that, you know, as a kid, it was like In Search Of and Ripley's Believe It or Not Little Paperbacks. And mm-hmm. I always loved stuff that was sort of outside the, the norm, you know, and I always gravitated towards that. I don't know if it's because those are the kind of shows I watched when I was six years old. Or oh, my father had Chariots of the Gods, you know, and I and I saw it in the bookshelf and I took it and put it, in the, and I was in the back of the car going on a long trip. I mean, I just always was into that kind of stuff. And then when I found out about the Westford Knight up in Westford, and I found out, I think it was about 20, I was like 1987-ish. And uh, that just led me into the whole, like, well, there's all this curious archaeology to New England and Viking well, things. and Well, don't you have a <clears throat> direct connection to the Westford Knight? Wasn't one of your relatives part of Sinclair's party? Well... I can't prove I go back to that guy, but we do suppose the You know, he was supposed to be James, Sir James Gunn, and Miles' name is Gunn, so uh, you know, possibly. Okay. <laughs> I like to think so, but I have never proven that. But yes, that's the well family name. Yes, yeah. it's the. I mean, it's definitely they think that Sir James Gunn is the identity of who the Westford Knight was. Um, yeah. At least that's the current thing. Well, I
1: Westford's. mean, for those who might, may have missed your first appearance, just kind of give a brief explanation of what the Westford Knight mm-hmm. is.
3: Okay, the Westford Knight
1: is a carving uh, off a of Depot Street that
3: uh, it was formed in a punch-marked, you know, dot-by-dot dot fashion. Uh, it's not carved in like a, like with a line. It's carved dot-by-dot. Dot. And it was um, in the history of Westford Book, I believe in the 1880s. I believe that art type is called stippling. It's like stippling, exactly. It's peck-marked peck and stippled into the rock. And uh, in the 1880s it was known, but they thought it was an Indian tomahawk. Okay, And in 1954, uh, Frank Glynn... Uh, who I believe was like a postmaster over in Connecticut, he went up there and he kind of cleared away some of the gro- overgrowth and stuff around this rock. And he just, he, what he thought he found was an effigy of a whole six-foot-long knight, that this supposed tomahawk was actually a broadsword, no. and that there was a, a, a faint face and that there was a shield next to the sword. The tough part about the Westford Knight is it's like over 600 years old. Like 1998 was 600 years from the supposed, when this was allegedly supposed to be carved. Some people think it's a natural formation. It is not natural. There, I mean, that sword is definitely there. But I think that the person who carved it was miles away from his ship. He was probably a guy who had like a hammer and a punch. He probably was the guy who fixed your armor and your tools. And his punch got dull through time. So he used the striations on this rock, the glacial striations for, like, the legs and part of, like, the overcoat and stuff. So that has led people to think that it's just a natural formation. Um, but it's not. I mean, the sword is definitely there. And, you know, but the, but the difficulty is it, this thing's 600 years old. It's been beaten up by the weather. It's had ice on it for 600. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's exposed to the elements. And now it's beside, beside a main road in Westford. So all that, you know, the acid rain and the things can all... Salt from the, you know, all of that is just chewing this thing up um, through the years, and um, they believe that it is that the Westford Knight is a relic from the Prince Henry Sinclair voyage of the late 1390s, like 1398, 1399. They believe this guy came over here, Prince Henry Sinclair, from the Orkney Islands. That he probably stopped in Nova Scotia, which is wicked cool because right, Nova Scotia, New Scotland, came from Scotland, ended up in no, but it was Nova Scotia later. Mm -hmm. But coincidentally, he stopped in Nova Scotia because some of the accounts uh, mentioned uh, mountains like with pitch burning and there's some spots in Nova Scotia that fit that. And then they think that maybe some of the party went up the Merrimack River and that they went up the Stony Brook off of the Merrimack and ended up in what's now Westford because there's the um, Prospect Hill is there and it was the meeting point of several, like, I heard like multiple, like, multiple Indian trails led to the top of the hill. and. They think that, basically, that they might have been led by Native guides, maybe. That's one of the thoughts about it. And that one of the party died. And from what I understand, I believe these guys, and I I can't say this 100%, but I think I read somewhere that they might have been like cousins, like first cousins. Mm -hmm. And they both probably like in their late 50s. So being 58 in 1398 is not like being 58 like right now. Right. And if you're going up a hill in armor, and also you have Native Americans, you know, language barriers, you know, things could turn ugly quickly. And the fact that the the Westford Knight's sword
1: has a line across
3: it, meaning death in battle, maybe. So maybe.
1: Yeah, this wasn't like the the uh, European visitors of the 1600s, where they've already become kind of a common sight. Uh, this is at a point when any stranger would have probably been met with uh, either great reverence or, uh, yeah. <laughs> or probably would have been uh, attacked. And imagine
3: how just like a, a, a how quickly, if you have two people don't speak the same language, a misunderstanding can happen. Someone just make a gesture, and oh, know, right. people's nerves yeah. are on edge. You know, and and think about it. Those Scottish guys up in like the Orkneys, they they were like kind of Nordic. The uh, the Orkansans, they were kind of, of Nordic ancestry, like Gunn, you know, Gunnbjorn, Gunnison, These are Basically, Viking ancestored people who lived in North Scotland and meeting with the Indians, they're both badass people. They're both tough people. You know what I mean? So.
0: As you guys say, they, they, they weren't small people.
1: No, sizable people, yeah. both of them, yeah. Good statured people, you know. So, I mean, that being one of the stories that first kind of drew you in, and then wh- where did oh, you. Oh, well, let me.
3: All right, if I could just. I'm sorry, I kind of got off track there a little bit, but it actually just was a Christmas present for my father. I, I got a book in 1987 for Christmas time, The Highland Clans. And in a footnote in that book, I, I opened it up before I wrapped it. And uh, you know, you turn to the McKays and the McGregors and the, the different clans. And I turned to our page just to see what it said. I remember, you know, I remember vividly, I was, and I was wrapping it. And there was a little footnote that said, surprisingly enough, this family's coat of arms is etched on a rock in Massachusetts in or about 1395. I don't know why the book said that. Usually you see 1398 or 1399, but this book said 1395. And I remember reading it because it just, I thought it was a typo. It just didn't make any sense. Like, what would my family coat of arms be doing? There are not supposed to be any medieval, late medieval knights walking around what's now Massachusetts at that point. It's a very strange period of time. If you're in Scotland, it's not that, you know, this house is over there that old. But if you are in Massachusetts not much is supposed to be going on you know outside indian stuff right. in 1390s you know it's just a, kind of a funny time you know it's post viking it's pre you know gognald and all that stuff you know so it's just kind of or even the portuguese sailors of the 1500s probably you know it's just kind of a funny time 1390s there's nothing really supposed to be happening here like on that level
1: so that kind of made that connection in your mind that you know this is this is a, the rabbit hole that you're ready to fall down
3: well it, yeah i mean it, i hate to say it cuz i was into other things like music and th- other things a little more at the time so it took me about 4 or 5 years to get up there so around 91, 92, I finally, I was about 25, I made it up to Westford. I met with uh, Virginia Kimball, um, Norman Bigart, and a few of the people, uh, Bill Collins, um, up in the Westford Knight Committee. And it actually was Virginia Kimball. i got to give her credit because when we were talking at her house one day about the Westford Knight, she said, well, you know, Dirk, this thing isn't isolated, right? I mean, and she I forget even what she said now. I don't know if she mentioned America's Stonehenge or probably Dighton Rock, for example. But she said, you know, there's other things, you know, like this. And we talked about this the last time, majorly, about how you can grow up and go to school in a town. You don't need, Something could be in your backyard, maybe, and you don't even, right. you know, the Fearing Tavern you mentioned. And, um, you know, it, it, it was like, okay, there's all these other curiosities, too. So that led me, yes, into that rabbit hole of, well, wait, there might have been Vikings on Cape Cod, and, the, and, and there's maybe even earlier stuff, like almost like Phoenician-type people or Kel- Celtic people, you know, this chamber. It just it led to a lot
1: of other stuff, the Westwood Night. rail really. And you realize that, the, you know, that history is not being taught to you but it is accessible for you to go out and find on your own if you're willing to do the digging and willing to do the research. Uh, and that there is a community of people who have been researching this around here. It just hasn't made it into the lesson plan of the local high school.
3: Well, you know what it is? It's, it almost relates back to my interest in the trickster stuff. There's evidence. There seems to be, you know, with the smoke, this fire, there seems to be evidence that people were here before Columbus. But there's no, like, you don't find this massive, uh, like, the place in Canada where they know the Vikings stayed. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There isn't that level of. That level, that indisputable level, and that's what a real archaeologist. You know, a real archaeologist probably would. I mean, sort of a mainstream one would probably have a lot of problems with the things I say. I understand that, and I, you know, they want science and they want. And there's, but there's all these tribs and drabs of something was happening. And even if you look at the layout on a map of America, where you find these kind of oddities, a lot of them are clustered in New England, and then you go down, you look up the Mississippi River, and they're clustered on tributaries of the, you know, what I mean, of the uh, Mississippi. So, it seems like. well, New England's the closest point over to Europe, right? And as you get down to its Pennsylvania, they start to thin out a little bit, mm-hmm. and then you get down to Florida. If you, know, if you just graph it on a map, it looks like the closest point to Europe has the most stuff, like you'd expect it to. You know I mean? Right, if, exactly. It kind of little incursions and glancing blows of culture. You and,
1: and you're talking about you know, the mainstream arche- mainstream archaeologists who are – uh, kind of having it put in their lap with enough evidence to say, okay, here, oh, yeah, well, it's, it's easy to make that connection then. But with what you're doing, you have to kind of extrapolate and find some of these common themes and maybe go beyond just what is there physically and, and go just what beyond is recorded and kind of piece together that narrative on your own, which I think is is probably a lot more of a challenge uh, to be able to do that and to not fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, if we have this, then we can just assume that this and this and this and this. You know, you have to really dig and really find the stuff to back that up. So to me, you know, that's, that's got to be a harder job than just saying, being the archaeologist who finds the giant landing spot for all the Vikings, you know? I think the, the, I agree with you, and I
3: think the other thing, too, that I didn't mention, but it plays into this with, with say, the mainstream archaeologist viewpoint and, uh, and someone who's like a little more fringe is all the history of hoaxes and things. I mean, you, you have to factor that in. That would get, right. that would lead people to believe that most of it's nonsense, right? Because there have been hoaxes and there have been misinterpretations, and the, so it gets very complex. I think the issue is a complex issue, and um, I think that um, I think that kind of archaeology is opening up. Everyone, you know, I see things on TV, and I see different. I've met a few people that. They seem more open-minded about it. I mean, I think like Kurt Hoffman over at, in, in Bridgewater State. I mean, I've spoken to him sometimes, and he, you know, he's an anthropologist. And he seems kind of open to transoceanic contact. You know, through the years, he seems more, and more you know. So, I mean, I think it's probably, you know, if we can believe uh, in, in even more fringe stuff like, you know, alien visitations like that. Right. Like yeah, people was- going across the ocean in a. It's not really it's not that, that big, big of really, a deal, hey, yeah. It shouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, look at the world Guinness Book of World Records on the smallest craft to go across. I mean, people go over like in almost like, like little ten foot things now. You
0: know what I mean? How many so, coconuts wash up ashore on shores of whales? You know? It doesn't have to be human. Nature yeah. crosses oceans all the time. Yeah.
3: And that and I ever mean, saw an an archaeologist on TV. He actually it was funny what he was doing because he was admitting that things just because of Gulf Stream type action would probably came here. But how he took out it, how he changed it into it not being sort of valid was he was like, well, we're talking about deliberate navigation here. In other words, say some Phoenician ship, and the Phoenicians had amazing ships. So the Celts, actually. If, they could, if the Phoenicians came over here by accident, you know, just a storm took them out of the Straits of Gibraltar, and they just ended up in uh, what's Brazil or something, right? They came across. That's the answer. They did. Yeah. It wasn't. Who cares what? How it happened? It happened, right? But this guy, I think it was Brian Fagan. He's like, you know, but we're talking about deliberate navigation. Like he, like even just the accidental thing wasn't good enough for him. Like he, says, he wanted a case where it was deliberate. So I, you know, because right,
1: you know, Lord knows we want to celebrate accidental discoveries of the New World, <coughs> Columbus. <coughs> <laughs> but uh, when you when you start to go into this and you start to to look for these pieces to put together, it probably does start to um, show up quite a bit that we have uh, used a lot of revisionist history in some of these stories. Uh, And the Bridgewater Triangle, for example, is rife with that. We have... Because you know, you've you've tried to talk to to the people associated with the local station for this, and uh, I've tried to do it as well. You know, I've tried to get the Wampanoags to come on the air and discuss some of these things, and they won't. You might hear a little bit bits and pieces kind of off the record, but we can't really get this story. So we start kind of putting our own, what I call the white man spin, on everything, and so therefore it's going to have that tinge of the way that we see things, and. The, one of the prime examples, of course, is the Hakimak Swamp. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear all these stories about how the natives wouldn't go there; that it was the place where spirits dwell, where evil dwells, the devil's swamp, whatever, whatever you want to attribute to, to Hakimak. And I know that you've actually done some of the research into that. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I think what the thing is when
3: when you read a book or or even in the movie, it, it kind of gives a. Sometimes it's like when a news story happens somewhere, you know, and you're interviewed for 40 minutes, but then on the news it's like a
1: 10-second segment. The way they want to tell the and story. It's,
3: and, it's, and I think that, in like, exactly. And I think in, like, most books, um, most people when they talk about it online a lot, for example, it's kind of translated, it's usually translated as place of the spirits, a place of evil spirits or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think what it is is it's an actually, it's a much more complicated answer. And if we have a couple of minutes, I'd like to sure, I just, yeah. and throw it out at you. Okay, it, what I think it is. And this is just my personal opinion only. Um, I think that the Native Americans, as I understand it, they had, you know, a pantheon of gods. And the good god, you know, Catan, Cantanto, whatever you want to, you basically didn't have to do much to make him happy. He was sort of always omnipresent. He's there. He's on your side. You don't need to really do much for him. The trickster figure god, Habamako, You want to do rituals to get him off your back. You want to appease him, make him happy, because one day he might help you get to game, the next day he might help you get lost in the swamp. So when the Puritans saw Native Americans appeasing a trickster figure, which they would have equated with the devil, Mm -hmm. they presumed that the Native Americans were devil worshipers. That's just where they were coming from. So indirectly, when we have a rock that's called like Indian rock or devil's rock, or when we start saying that Habermock... A oh, Hokkamok means like evil spirit place. I think we're actually perpetuating a, like a hundreds of year old mistake. A misperception.
1: It's a it's a very sound theory. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially when we say, "Well, you know," because we've asked this question before. We've asked you this question. How come every town has a devil's rock? You know, how come every town has a witch's rock? How come every town has a rock where some sort of evil sacrifice, uh, some sort of altar? And maybe it wasn't an altar in terms of evil sacrifice. Maybe it was somewhere where, you know, the natives just gathered and it became their kind of uh, centerpiece. Exactly. And, and so, therefore, we have to attribute this to. Because the rock
0: is prominent and easily seen. It's not that it's, you know, any magical thing to it. It's just, hey, there's a big rock that we can right. all see it, from it becomes, here. It
1: becomes a navigational point, yeah. which, I mean, we do that when we're kids. We don't yeah. know what street is what and what route is what. We say go down to that big rock, take a left. You'll see that tree that's split into a V, and then go four more steps from there. The the thing um, really, too, is,
3: I mean, and I'm probably repeating it in a, in a sense, but, you know, we're coming from the viewpoint now, I mean, 2014 where we are, right? You can be a pagan, you can be wicked, and, and that's all. But I'm saying, picture like 1702. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not practicing the Judeo-Christian thing, you're really kind of outside the paradigm of, of society.
1: Unless it really hasn't changed that much. You know,
3: but I'm, right. but I, mean, well, I think it's changed in some ways. But, I mean,
1: you know, you
3: know, I think like if you're a Native American where you have a sort of uh, animistic religion, you know, where the tree has a spirit and the wind has, you know, that's that's complete paganism to a very pure, you know, right. vision
1: Christian, you know what I mean? We we may have the freedom now to believe in those things, but there's still the prevailing sensibility is still Judeo-Christian, Yeah, and especially around here. Oh, man, yeah. especially around here. But, I mean,
3: imagine in, like, you know, 1683. I mean, if you're, like, doing a bonfire around a, a good-sized rock or something, you're dancing on the rock, and, and, and it's on And you're may already day.
1: mostly naked.
3: Yeah, and you, you might be some topless women involved, natives or whatever, and then there's some, you know, you get got a Maypole up. I mean, this is like Thomas Morton type stuff.
0: Sounds like a weekend at my place. That's oh, true. Okay.
3: Well, true. Parties, the only the <laughs> only difference
1: is they had yet to have guns to shoot off constantly. Yeah. So.
3: Well, I mean, I think that really that but they, they, were coming. they conflated the idea of see, they didn't understand a trickster god mm-hmm. because in Judeo-Christian system we don't really have a trickster. The trickster is the devil. If he's, he's there's not somebody who's kind of good and kind of bad, right? Mm-hmm. He's just that's someone bad being kind of good faking you out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. they wouldn't have a concept of a trickster figure. But other religions around the world in Africa, I mean, all around the world, really. Yeah, had, pretty much every other. I one. mean, think of ancient Greece, they had Hermes, or, uh, you know, the, the Norse had Loki, or, you know, all, the Native Americans had all kinds of trickster things going on, and, and, and so did Africa, too. And all around the world, really. I mean, the trickster was recognized. That trickster consciousness was given a identity. It was anthropomorphic. You know what I'm saying? So... I just think that the Christian viewpoint they would not understand that, so they would equate that with the devil, and so that's why the evil aspect has crept into what we tend to think of as like what's the answer to what this thing is called or what what it represents. But it's actually it's, because I, I can tell you just linguistically, I think I'm correct in saying if it meant place of evil spirits, that word would be something like Magi Manitouit, Magi bad, Manitou spirit et place. Okay, do you know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. All those place endings like at Cohasset in Massachusetts, you know. So the fact that it's Hockamock, I
1: don't get the place out of that right off the bat. If Maybe. I ever form my own street, too, that's going to become the name of it. Now. An minute to just it. Just to keep people away from it. <laughs> but uh, we we got about five minutes here before we have to take a break for the news. Uh, but why do you feel like uh, there are trickster spirits so prevalent in other cultures, in other religions? Why is there a need to have that type of, of a personality in, in your uh, cultural experience? I think the reason
3: that that figure exists in mythology is because it's a very real force, and I almost think it might relate a little bit to the idea of synchronicity and Carl Jung's type stuff. I think that the the trickster spirit is actually a real force in our world, and it's it's real, and people call it different things, like the ancient Greeks would call it Hermes, or this people, they would call it Loki, you know what I mean? So they identified it, and they named it, and it, it occupies... I mean, I think you can tell the significance. For example, Hermes, let's go back to him for a second. Hermes has more attributes than any Greek god, even Zeus, his father. He covers shepherds. He covers liars, thieves, commerce, um, uh, messengers. I mean, he has more aspects than any god. So I think the ancient people recognized this trickster consciousness in life. And that's why most religions that... And I'm not picking on the Judeo-Christian. I mean, I grew up a cat. I'm, you know, right, yeah. but I'm just saying, in terms of outside my world, outside the typical, you know, if you're raised a Christian or whatever, the trickster spirit's omnipresent. And it's almost every culture has one or two going, you know what I mean, in the pantheon. You know?
1: and, it, and it seems like, it, it, as you're saying there, you know, it covers the dichotomy of human beings uh, and the own in, the, our own internal struggle of what we may feel, you know, of how, how we can go in one direction one moment and one direction the next. And it's almost to say, you know, it's okay that you feel that way because even those who are supposedly above you are prone to that same thing as well.
0: Exactly. And, you know, we still do. Well, think about this in our politics. What are what are all of our politics filled with? A bunch of tricksters, and this went back in history. Am I wrong? It, it makes no difference if you're ruling a people, you rule mainly by a couple of different things, and one of the most common things is sleight of hand, mentally. And, well, and, and, hand, and, hand, and having, slight, having hand, multiple, hand. multiple
1: yeah. faces, right. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to have the face that fits the moment and the situation. We we
3: actually still um, not only politically, but I mean even like pop culture wise, we still enjoy tricksters. I mean, I think a good case could be made that Felix the Cat, Bart Simpson. There's a lot of tricksters that you don't really think of. You know, I mean, and, and a lot of times they, you know, trickster figures are very liminal. You know, and sometimes it they uh, almost uh, in, uh, encompass things like um, hermaphroditism, like you know when Bugs Bunny dresses like a girl. And I mean, the, the trickster figure. Um, it 's there it 's even in like our pop culture to this day, um, but like we don 't have a figure
1: like I was saying in Christianity that really fits that. I mean it would just be the devil you know? uh, although they do tend to give a little bit of um, a little bit of leeway in terms of the angels, you know the angels are are uh, you do have this history of with the angelic figures of them. Kind of playing the humans a bit. And not always having the best of intentions. I mean, sure, you have the people who, you know, draw the pictures of the angels with the halos and the wings and all that stuff. But when you get into the real meat and potatoes of angelic stories, a lot of times, sometimes they're, they're leading humans down the wrong path, uh, for their own, because of their own jealousy or what have you. But that might be the closest, but it's still nothing like you see in some of these other religions and other cultures.
3: I think the, um, I think the uh, the might be like that, you know, more like like more obviously tricks. Like some of them are good to you, and some of them some have humanities. They don't have humanities best interest at heart. You know, there's a negative type thing going on there. So I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems to be very prevalent in a worldwide phenomena, and uh, I I think it's there because it's actually, I don't understand it, but I think that it's actually a real a real sort of uh, presence in the world, real consciousness.
1: Well, we will be talking more with Derek Gunn in the next hour. If you would like to call in at any point, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can also email us, Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can tweet us, tweet us at SpookySC. Matt, I, I don't have access to the chat room here. Do you have access to it over there at I all? I do, actually. And uh, so if there's any questions that pop yep. up, feel free to just jump in with them, yep. you know, the same way you do on Spirit Connections now. I do. Yeah. <laughs> are, 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 is it you that's manning the uh, chat room now? Yes. Yes. I have the, uh, the the giant whiteboard that I have the question on now. You, you know they did invent these things called teleprompters? All right, no, I, don't, I don't want to make more and uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we will talk more with Derek. We'll also talk about some very interesting topics uh, when it comes to the idea of these curiosities in New England, and we'll take your phone calls as well. Again, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to call in and chime in. You have to do that, folks. Uh, We I can't see your chat room questions, so you need to call in tonight and share your thoughts with us if you have a question for Derek, a question in general, even just an observation. Maybe you have a weird rock formation in your yard and you want to let us come check it out. We'll be back in just a moment with more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Financial is something that isn't supposed to happen, it does it? AM 1420, WBSF presents Speaking South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Postman. Hi.
1: Coming back, our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Casa and science advisor, Matt Moniz. And I gotta tell you guys, I'm sitting here monitoring my email, watching the tickets be sold for this upcoming Legend Trips event that we can't even say on the air yet, but just in pre-sale. We're already seeing these tickets fly off the shelves. But there's still six left to be had for the Mark Twain House, which... How often do you get to walk the halls of one of America's greatest writers in the house where he wrote some of his most famous works? I mean, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, these characters were created in this house in Hartford, Connecticut, where we'll, we will be investigating on April 12th. And, of course, there won't be a spooky South Coast that night. Maybe we'll have something pre-recorded. We always say that, but we never yeah. do. And uh, then uh, <laughs> our next Legend Trips event isn't planned until July, That's the one that we have in pre-sale right now. But there's all kinds of things coming up on the In-Between that we'll be part of. And what's interesting about Legend Trips now is we're being asked to put together events for other people's events. So when people are having conferences and conventions, they want us to come in and kind of put together ghost hunts associated with those events. So we're going to keep pretty busy. Keep your social calendars clear, Legend Trippers, because we're going to have so much stuff going on uh, over the next few months and probably throughout the rest of the year. Uh, another thing too that I want to mention is that uh, on sp- we have other shows on Spooky TV in addition to this show, and I know that we don't always do a good job here promoting them yeah. on the air, Matt. But why don't you let people know what we have coming up on the schedule? Uh, well, we have a couple of uh, pre-recorded shows that um,
2: on Monday nights we have Ghost of Near and the Chuckles and Laughs Show. Uh, which, on- which that's a show with clowns, right? That's, yeah, it's uh, I think it's weird clowns. Yeah. Like satanic clowns that wrestle. They do wrestle. They on wrestle? On occasion. Yeah. It's each of, other
1: or other people? or
2: um, I don't know. They, like they, in a they ring like, or like uncomfortably? I think they just kind of attack each other here and there. Okay. And do drink. they play they, a lot of ICP? No, but they drink Narragansett. That's like their Fago? Yeah, yeah. Narragansett <laughs> beer? Then they'll have like a, a punk rock band or whatever playing. Nice. It's, it's, it's a good time. And then um, on Wednesdays, it's the uh, Slaps 360 Guys. Oh yeah, spare connections on Tuesday. Yeah, don't right, right that. over Tuesday. That's our, our live show, our other flagship yeah. show. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then Thursdays is a uh, paranormal uh, after party. That's at eight o'clock with uh, Flip Searles and uh, the generic Blackshirt Paranormal Group, and us. Right, lots. Well, uh, and then there's there's a couple of the shows coming down the pipeline, I suppose, but uh, nothing nice. nothing solid yet.
1: And, uh, of course, those who listen to us here on Spooky South Coast and on Spooky TV, uh, don't forget, too, that we are also broadcast Thursday nights on the Dark Matter Radio Network online. So you can check us out on Art Bell's very own Dark Matter Radio Network. So this show will be replayed uh, coming up on Thursday night from 10 to midnight on the Dark Matter Radio Network online. So we are very proud to be part of that family. And uh, there, was, there was something else that I wanted to mention, too, and I don't want to let it slip in. Ah, Right, next week's show. Uh, next week we're going to have the ladies of Paranormal Expeditions here with us, Tina Storer and Rachel Hoffman, to talk about their new... Venture, true crime, paranormal. And we'll also have joining us as a special co host that night, Stephanie Burke. So she'll be here as well. And uh, we'll have a good time. We'll have lots of people here in the studio. It's going to be a real challenge for whoever's directing Spooky TV, Matt Costa. Yep. So uh, maybe we've got to pick up some extra webcams or something over the week. So. We'll have a lot of people in here. So uh, we are talking tonight with Derek Gunn about some New England curiosities and some of the alternative history to the area that you might not have heard. And Like I said earlier, I mean, I'm not bragging here, but we are an internationally downloaded program. People listen to the show all over the world. And you would think that when we talk about something that happens in this region, it would kind of lose the interest of people in Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan. But instead, these are the shows that people love. They love learning about what goes on here in this area. And for some reason, it's become uh, kind of, uh, you know, everybody's kind of adopted paranormal home. You know, everybody looks, looks at all the stories that come out of the Bridgewater Triangle, out of New England in general, uh, some of the, the weird maritime history that we have, all these stories. And uh, so that's why we are continuously presenting this information to you guys uh, over the course of the many years that we've been doing this program. And it's funny now, Derek, this is your second appearance on the show, and even after... You know, four hours of talking, we'll never have covered uh, everything that we could possibly discuss uh, because it just seems like as you peel back the layers, you just find more and more. Uh, has this research kind of been something that has been growing exponentially for you over the years as well? Do you find, like, as each year goes by, you're digging more and more into these stories?
3: Absolutely. I mean, it, I used to joke people say it never ends. You know, someone would say, well, when the hell are you putting that book out? You know, and and there has to be some closure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been a, it's been a long haul. I've been researching this thing for a long time, and the interest of being sort of comprehensive. But just the just like a year ago, someone brought me to this amazing site in Middlebar, a perched boulder, uh, a boulder on a hillside with uh, three peg stones that were the stone on top was. The pegstones beneath it were completely mated to it. I thought he was going to bring me to an old cellar hole or something because sometimes people do that when they know I like rock formations and things. They bring me to something that, you know, it is interesting for what it is, but it's not quite what I'm looking for, if right. you know what I mean. And this guy, a friend of mine, said, oh, I got this thing on my property, and he didn't tell me what it was. He kept saying, let's just go, you know, I'll just, just, let, go, just go with me, bear so with me. So it was me. a dolmen. It was like a dolman. It was like a, a perched boulder or, you know, some people would definitely call it a dolman. Um, and uh it's an it's sort of an unknown one you know that no one's really researched it it's just on this guy's property off the side of the road and it's in the woods a little bit it's near some power lines and um and he, it, it's kind of neat because he's given me, like, cock blanche to kind of look at it because it's on his property, you know what I mean? So maybe, you know, I can do, like, a dig on it per se, but I like to maybe clear away some of the trees that are kind of all over it and just kind of get some good pictures of it and, and maybe get the right person to look at it, you know, who has, um, who has the, the, the paper behind his name or something, you know?
1: Yeah, it might be kind of hard, though, to, to do something like that, uh, and you've been doing it for a long time. But it must be hard to to find these locations. Then you've got to figure out who owns the land oh, that they're yeah. on. Oh, that's happened to me, Um. My A
3: site that's very near and dear to my heart, and if you if you look on my webpage, Amazing Massachusetts, you'll see on the, the bio page of my – I'm standing next to the Standing Stone that's in Marshfield. It's one mile down the street from where I grew up in an area called Devil's Hollow. Again, the be devil place name thing, Lauren Coleman thing. But, um, yeah, uh, for years I thought a guy at the end of this dirt road owned it, and he thought he owned it. And, again, he gave me carte blanche. He said, Derek, I'd be out here studying it with you, but I just don't have the time. And he thought it was awesome because he has – Again, like, you know, Celtic and Nordic ancestry, you know, and, uh, full red beard and stuff. And, uh, we found out, no, it's not on his property at all. It's the next parcel of land over. Nah. And the lady lives in, like, New Hampshire and she's not that friendly to people, <laughs> you know. And so, um, here I am, maybe for a couple of years, you know, looking at this thing, taking pictures, showing other, showing the Marshall Historical, uh, the Marshall Historical Commission, the site. I brought people from NERA, uh, New England Antiquities Research Association. I'm, I'm chasing people thinking I have total permission to, to be there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the end of the world. It's right off of, some again, some power lines uh, that cut through that part of uh, Green Harbor. And, um, I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to be, you know, trespassing, but I probably was indirectly and not on purpose. But.
1: Is there any kind of precedent if uh, one of these historic locations are found on somebody's private property? Is there any kind of precedent of being able to take it over under eminent domain to say that, you know, this is something that needs to be made available to the public?
3: You know, I don't know. And uh, if you go to the town hall in Marshfield, the 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 um, all the papers, all the, you know, show paper roads going right through the site. I mean, this paper in it, the the roads on the plans do not match what is physically there right now mm-hmm. at all. And they have done some every about five or ten years they look at that area to develop more. But the standing stone site that I found there is right next to some power lines so i don't think a house would go right on it but that doesn't mean like a road wouldn't go across it either sure you know so it's it's in a little bit of a precarious zone and uh i used to go and talk to the town planner and stuff every once in a while and it seems like things have chilled out there because i believe what it is is if they put any more homes in that area they would have to do improvements like lights and sidewalks and so there's a monetary thing that's kind of keeping it on the you know back burner from somebody real looking at that area right now but i do you know to answer your question, yes, I don't know. I don't your know.
0: station for the south.
3: I don't know if there's a precedent for saving things like that. Um, I did think when it was going to be developed, maybe like that the Plymouth Plantation would come down and take the Standing Stone and put it in the Hawk, uh, Habermox uh, campsite in the back with the Native Americans there or something like that.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, if the power lines are in that close of proximity, chances are it's owned by the utility company because they own property within so many hundreds of feet from their power lines okay. and stuff like that for liability purposes.
3: So maybe it's maybe it's just within the lines and probably is, right. yeah. That'll be good, you know. Because then it'll never develop it or anything. But it is a five foot standing stone in a roughly three hundred foot stone row. I hesitate to call it a wall because it's not like your typical Yankee wall around here with, you know, stones you and I could move. Mm-hmm. It's more like a path of boulders with a five-foot standing stone and when you it describes sort of an L it goes 300 feet then 75 feet the other way and then at the end is this beautiful diamond shaped stone that's cut but not with metal tools.
0: I got a question have you aligned it with any of the solstices and or equinoxes both lunar as well as solar?
3: Not lunar but when Jim Maver James Maver who wrote Manitou uh, which is a great book I recommend it to your to your listeners uh, Byron Dixon, James Maver, uh, Manitou, I think he came out around 89. I got Jim Maver. This was a real coup getting this guy out because he was older at the time. He came up from Woods Hole. He saw the site. He was very excited about it. And he did have some kind of device to measure the, you know, the declination of it. But he, yeah. he said to me that he thought it was a, um, I believe he thought it was a spring sunrise alignment, like a March 20th, like a vernal equinox yeah. alignment. Yes. It's nice. roughly an east-west wall, too. It's, when you go on Google Maps, you look at it. It's very, very east-west. It's very,
1: so, I, I shouldn't say wall, wall, stone row. <clears throat> uh, in, in discussing the idea, too, of development around some of these sites, I've got to ask you, we've been talking quite a bit here, and I talk quite a bit on my Saturday morning program, about the expansion known as South Coast Rail, where they're going to be starting to bring uh, the MBTA commuter lines uh, down to this neck of the woods, and the plan for that calls for going right through the Hackamack Swamp and right through all of that land. And I know that you spent a lot of time out there. I mean, what kind of damage could we be doing not only to the, the environmental impact but just the historical impact uh, by running train service through the middle of the Hockamock Swamp? Um, I mean, I'm not
3: sure the specifics are to be 100% honest with you, but I imagine that would change the whole you know, uh that you're disrupting the whole uh, ecology of the place and, and, and changing. If you put like a rail line and a raised bed and stuff, it would change how things flow. There's, and I
0: ride through that every day. It's it's the um, Lakeville line that goes up to South Station. It goes right through the. Whole coast no, no, coast no. Right no. Right this right this
1: somewhere. new line is going to completely bisect it, and it's going to pretty much changed the whole topography of the area. And part of the plan involves uh, eventual development of the land around the swamp, too. So it would basically be taken over. I think the plan actually called for the insertion of a stop uh, in that neck of the woods, too. So that could cause a lot of issues. I'm wondering about how many of these historical sites are out there, You know, these standing stones and other things like that that we haven't even found yet that are going to be threatened by this type I can of give uh, you, expansion.
3: I can give you a good example of that that was was kind of tragic. I found out about a chamber, you know, stone cave, man-made stone cave, a root cellar if you want to call it, in Walpole. Now, that thing had been there for like a long time, right? So I'm talking to this guy who was a historian out in that area, and he told me that there were several chambers in Walpole. It's, they might not be ancient, but there were these kind of uh, things there. And I went one day, this was back in the, I think, late 90s, and they had demolished it. The day before I got there, Ooh. can you imagine that? Like, there was a pile of rocks in this person's yard. <laughs> it was like, oh, the chamber used to be, like, right there. And it was there for probably hundreds of years, maybe longer if it was one of these ancient ones that I'm looking for. And it was literally I'd gone, like, a day or two late, like, if I'd just been there, like, the week oh, before.
1: That reminds me of the time Matt went to the mall to see Mr. T. Uh, one of the <laughs> – he, uh, he laughed knowingly there. Uh, when when – you do have these, uh, you know, these types of locations that we want to preserve. Uh, the, often, modern progress will stand in the way of that, and uh, not everybody has the same appreciation for some of these locations. And we had an issue where we live in Wareham. They built this new mall, the Wareham Crossing, uh, where they put in well, you know, half the anchor stores they put in there have already moved on. Uh, but uh, they they built this, you know, open air mall type plaza, and it's on the site that used to be. Uh, There used to be an NSTAR building there, uh, an NSTAR hub. But around that, there was a lot of undeveloped land that had just sat empty forever. And when they were moving this in, they found an old colonial cemetery. And they actually had to move that as part of the development. But there was also Native American sites that they didn't show the same respect to, that they just kind of plowed through. And that's the the problem with this is, you know, we we don't have the same record of that that we do of these other it's easy for somebody in the historical society to come up and say well here's who's buried here we don't have that same type of uh, reverence for the Native American site so therefore they fall by the wayside that absolutely happened with
3: I'm sorry about that
0: I was going to say that the, the mall he's talking about they also had an, a Native American fishing weir. you know what that is they had one of those in that site because I used to work right across the street and mm-hmm. that was one of the areas we'd go walking around and. You know what a fishing weir is, obviously. Yeah, it's a it's well. A, for those
1: who don't know, including okay, me.
0: Okay, a uh, uh, fishing weir is where they divert part of a river and make like a little cul-de-sac. And what they do is they move stones in and out of the water to allow the flow to come in. The fish follow into the into the cul-de-sac, and then they lower the stone back down. And then they would, you know, fish in a barrel, so to speak. And they, that's
3: there was also this very ancient fish weir. Um, with wooden stakes, sometimes they do it with yeah, stone. Yeah. They did it with wooden stakes up where, um, remember where is uh, it? FAO Schwartz used to be up in Boston, there where the teddy bear was, and all that. Yeah, and about 30 feet down because you know Boston's been filled in yeah. so much, but when they were digging down, they found um, stakes that were, I mean, they copied this thing was ancient, like archaic time period, like it was really ancient. So they uh, sometimes would make this cul de sac or like a V in the water with stakes, and and you and then you. You know, you've got the fish, like you said. They all kind of they used to do this like uh, with deer and stuff too. Yeah. You know, but, um, good plan.
0: <clears throat> no, it, it's it's efficient.
3: Yeah. But I to go back to what you were saying for a sec. Um, I came across that the Standing Stone site. I found when I brought the Marshfield Historical Commission down there. Um, these three ladies um, who know everything about Marshville, they really do. They're really very very good. And our history book they wrote in 1990 it was excellent. That's where I found out it was called Devil's Hall. Actually, it was through them. Um, but they didn't, like you said, they didn't know, they didn't have a paradigm to put that standing stone, stone site in. This wasn't a house from... That, you know, Josiah Thomas lived in or something. You know what I mean? right. like, they, they, they had no paradigm for that thing. And they said, well, we're going to try to help you find out about it. And they had no information for me. They didn't. Because it's just a stone wall. And uh, the, one thing I thought was kind of funny was here I think this standing stone site might be significant. And right over by the power lines, there were these, um, you know, maybe four by four depressions where archaeologists had actually been before, years before I got there, and they were doing test pits. And I'm going, geez, well, you know, here's this great. I think it's kind of an enigma. This Standing Stone site, and and here were these actual people involved in this endeavor, and they they would never think to look at that as it's just an old wall. It's a boundary right. marker. Or something, you know what I mean? And they didn't
1: have the same eyes, maybe. Right. You know, if there, because I'm into this and they're not, so if you know. there isn't that point of reference for them. Then to them, it's you know, it's kind of like uh, when you when you when you go to the same place every day. You know, like, like I go I go to my house every day, and. There's times that I walk in and I may notice something that's changed it's different, but there's other times that I don't notice because I'm just just—I'm already seeing it the way that I'm used to seeing it when I walk in the door. I'm not really paying attention. You know, sometimes something will catch your eye and you'll be like, wait, that doesn't belong. But then other times you're just so oblivious to what goes on, and I think that's what happens is a lot of people around here end up with those blinders uh, because it doesn't fit into what their vision is of their town's history. Exactly. And I mean, we're, we're always taught around here. And this is kind
3: of, I think, the thrust of that book, Manitou, I was telling you. Native Americans did not build in stone. You know, Okay, well, the ones in Mexico and down there did in, in, in stone, but around here they didn't build in stone. Right. No. No, but that's what we're taught. And, and the book Manitou is saying, uh, if I can sort of the b- the book, uh, summarize the book, um, I think what Maver and Dix was saying is that there are stone rows. And, and, you know, back to Kurt Hoffman and stuff, when he wrote that book about the prehistoric of Middleborough, at the Fly- Flag Swamp Rock Shelter, there was a an overhang, a rock shelter, Native American, and there was a stone row above the rock shelter that had the action of preventing snow from, you know, dripping, melting, and the water going into stopped ice dams. They stopped the yeah. water from going down into the thing, uh, into their living quarters. And that construction was dated as being three thousand years old, uh. based on I think artifactual or charcoal or whatever they. Mm-hmm. But it was shown by supposedly, like you know. Archaeologist, so even in a book like uh, Kurt Hoffman's history of, uh, of, of Westboro Mass mm-hmm. um, here you have an actual academic saying there's a 3,000 year old stone construction Native American construction so and like you said fish weirs I mean or hearths I mean they did build in stone whether they did up to the chamber level now that's debatable but in Manitou Byron Dixon and Jim Maver say they did, they probably built chambers. And on the second to last page, they mentioned the Irish Caldi monks that maybe they came over here and collaborated. They both had shamanistic religions. They would have related in a lot of ways. The chiefs wear feathers. I mean, there's a lot of commonality actually between some of the Celtic practices and Native American practices. There really are. And even linguistically, maybe there is too. Um, There might be a few connections that could show that. Um, So he, you know. That may
0: be due to Inuit. Because Something a lot in of between yeah well the Inuits bring the uh Arctic circle, and a lot of them would come down southerly uh to, you know following seal populations and whale populations and stuff like that so the the wearing of the feathers and stuff like that may be the comp because if you look at the inuit they they were very very uh seafaring because that's how they got around in the sealskin uh canoes and stuff like that. And they would look for, you know, ob- objects and like feathers and other things like that to to work and trade with to make for their arrows and and stuff like that. So that, why would they not? That
2: dress
3: isn't yeah. The uh, the other thing when I mentioned linguistic connection, um, and and you know some people probably find this a stretch, but you know when you find an inscribed stone, someone can say, well, that's a hoax. So that's a modern you know whatever. Or it's a um, it was traded through. You know, hands in between, say, Ireland and here. You know, that's the famous story with the Viking penny up in Maine, that it traded hands with the Indians, that, you know, there were no Vikings in Maine. The Viking penny's there in a shell midden, but it traded through Native American hands. I mean, maybe it did. Maybe that is a real answer. I mean, who knows? But the thing is I like is some of the linguistic evidence. For example, uh, as I understand it, say Sagamore, okay, Native American word. Now it's a place name even though it's not not an et word, word, but Sagamore, down in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sagamore means a kind of lesser chief, right? A sage, from a Sagamore. Right. Now, in ancient Gaelic, as I understand it, more would mean, like, big wise man. Sagat would be cognate with our word sage, mm-hmm. and more means bigger, yeah, more. Wow. So more in ancient Gaelic sounds an awful lot like Sagamore. Yeah. And, um, there are other, um, connections that actually the kind of controversial Barry Fell, uh, the author of America BC, that he made some connections between Nordic and Celtic, uh, words and, uh, place names around New England or words for things around New England, uh, Merrimack, for example, he thought had a connection to Gaelic, um, uh, the Mystic River I saw in a book one time, which is a Native American word allegedly, uh, a purely Native American word, um, might have a Norse connection, uh, and, um. I'm trying to think of a few others, but um, every once in a while you get these these uh, linguistic clues that may indicate that there was some kind of contact, that there was a little bit of exchange of ideas and culture.
1: Well, it had to have been a little bit. It had to have been more than just a little bit for them to have retained uh, these identities. I mean, there had to have been some sort of working relationship there. I mean, uh, if you had just come in and used a word uh, with one of these cultures that were here at the time, one of the native cultures, it would take a lot for that word to stick. And it would take a lot for them to to make that association of what you meant and then to kind of use the same reference point. Um, so, I mean, I would, I would think there would have to be something pretty significant going on, which I've always felt that there had to have been something uh, significant going on because there's too many clues and there's too much of a story behind the story. You know, I watched a great special, uh, America Before Columbus, that was on, I think it was Discovery Channel. And I'm watching it and they're kind of explaining how the people lived and I'm watching a lot of it and I'm thinking to myself, but there seems to have been some sort of influence. And the paranormal guy in me is like wondering about, you know, ancient aliens and that type of stuff. But then your mind just starts to make those connections of, well, maybe there was a lot more interaction between the Europeans and the natives than we realize now and uh, because it wasn't written down and neither side really discussed it. Uh, that we have to look again, as you do, we have to look at the, the you know, we have to look at the forest for the trees, and be able to make those connections ourselves. You know, for some
3: reason, guys, and, uh, and if you look into this, you can you can see it for yourself. Really, uh, the mainstream people do not seem to have a problem with people visiting on the other side. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like uh, Chinese visitation to California, say, or something, or 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 you know, Asian connections to like what's now like Mexico or something. You know what I mean? That doesn't seem to be a big, shocking thing. It's like no, no, these people like they got in boats and they did things. But over here, there's this such this mindset. I think it's starting to crack, but it's been there for so long. It's amazing to me. It's just, it's it it's like it's like a wall. You know, they just don't. Most people just don't want to hear it. I mean, I don't mean like regular people. I'm talking more like, people. In, in academia, yeah, probably. the academics you know, they, yeah. They, they typically don't want to hear that because it's just like because of the hoaxes and because of the misinterpretations and frauds and and in in, in uh, charges of racism almost like oh the Indians couldn't have built these mounds because you know I don't I don't get into any of that I'm not I'm not denigrating Native American I, I love Native American culture a lot you know but it, but if there seems to be smoke in this I mean, it seems to be that people were here. Let's go for the truth, too. Were there the people here? It doesn't take anything away from anybody. It's just well, also too, too, part of humanity, it, you, know?
1: you mentioned the racism angle, and part of it is um, a belittlement, whether intentional or not, of the Native people. You know, we still have that same mindset of them just being mindless savages. And they can't be this advanced technological society because we like to feel like we brought them those advances in technology. But if the people who built the pyramids, allegedly, well... Acceptedly are uh, the ones that built the pyramids, well, then I would say that anybody can do anything you know uh, and, and to me it, it, to look at some of the things that are uh, being said couldn't be done by the natives um, i just I, I can't i can't say definitively like other people have like no there's no way that could be we don't know enough about that culture we've suppressed that culture so much that we no longer know what was possible and what wasn't from exactly and from from what it seems, if you, and again, go, let's go back to Mantua
3: for a second. I mean, I learned from that book that the Native Americans um, seem to have practiced very advanced land management techniques and that they knew about the burning over the land for the underbrush and stuff. They, they diverted rivers and swamps. They are they, they actually much more advanced than, the, than we people when we came over. I mean, you know. You think of, like, a Native American, like, if you Understood
0: found, the need of fertilization.
3: I mean, like, again, exactly. Uh, how about if you find a store of something, like an animal that's made a little store of something for the winter? You know, your typical white guy back then, I think, is going to grab, like, 100% of what he just found. But the Native Americans knew, like, grab, like, 80% and give him 20%. So when that thing comes to in the spring, he still can live. You know what I mean? So he'll do it right. again. Right. They didn't, like... They had very advanced understanding of ecology and... And, and so to think of them as backwards, um, you know, some people, if they think that way, they really ought to look into it you because know, it's, that's absolutely, you know, that's
1: backwards. Looking at it anthropologically, anthropologically you can kind of understand where the Europeans were coming from. They come from a conquering culture. Where there were constantly at war between countries and and between peoples and you know one had to rule the other and and they were all ruled essentially uh, because there were so many kingdoms throughout Europe and everything so everybody was kind of under somebody else's thumb uh, that they had that conquering mentality when they came over here and what they were meeting here uh, was a completely different type of a setup. Oh, you're you couldn't be more wrong. No, no, that's. I'm, I really feel like the difference being... Oh, you're feeling maybe
0: that, but the, believe it or not, between the Native American cultures, there there was lots of wars as well as enslavement.
3: Right, well, right. One thing he could relate to is, like, let's say the Native Americans didn't have the same idea of, like, land control, like, right. like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, they, uh, it, if you come over and you conquer, you own this, where the Natives well, would, the, this is yeah, my zone, this is yours zone. we might fight, but, you know. Yeah.
1: They had, there was all the different wars between the different tribes, uh, yeah. and uh, everything, you know, you can look at this, the history of the era and all the uh battles that they had and, and the different uh, tribes that we had in this area, but with that it was
0: it wasn't about land
1: it, it was, was people versus people. people right and that is a a very uh social type of warfare right. as opposed to this conquering mentality right. Right. that you had coming from the Europeans where you know if, if there was a conflict between it, it wasn't a matter of uh you know, you're where I want to be, so I'm just going to fight you. There was always more to it to the natives than that. With the Europeans, it was more like, no, no, we're here now, so this is ours, so you need to get out.
0: It was Europeans, it was about resources. With the natives, it was about pride.
1: I think that's probably probably fair, although I'm sure that there were some, you know, you've got the resources that I'd like to have, too. But mainly pride yeah you know. and i think part of that too is uh, with with the natives it was different coming from their spiritual background because that would put an intrinsic respect into them that maybe didn't exist because a lot of those warring factions that came from europe had to do with religious differences so you didn't believe the same thing that i believe necessarily it was a little tiny difference from one to the one to the other but it's enough for you not to be my brother anymore whereas with the natives they still had kind of the same overarching spiritual belief and yeah. that would kind of bind them together you're talking like a you know, Protestants
3: and Catholics killing each other. I mean, you're pretty close. If you're a Protestant and a Catholic, you're both Christians. Let's get it together, people. You know, right. So, right.
1: Yeah. The little minute difference. I, I love hearing, uh, you know, the different difference. Well, I'm Lutheran. I'm Baptist. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Whatever. I know people who don't believe in any of that stuff. So to to them, you know, it's 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 Go a
0: huge The point. <laughs> <laughs> is moot if you don't care
1: about it. And, and speaking of, of some of the natives and some of their beliefs, uh, I know that um, that you've done a lot. Of, we, we we can't talk about Wampanoags and, and put it out there to the world populace as we do with our podcast, and not bring up the subject of Pukwudgies. They always seem to come up whenever we discuss. We're talking about tricksters. We're talking about the Native Americans. Okay. We've got to discuss the Pukwudgies. and it's one of those things that, uh, again, you know, uh, a lot of other cultures don't have that frame of reference. So. We're only starting to really get kind of an accepted idea of how the Pukwudgie was represented, represented to the Native people. And I know that you've done a lot of research in that area.
3: Yeah, I could actually, you know, to go back to the name game stuff and the linguistics and stuff, it's, it's really interesting to me. I wonder if anybody's made this connection. I don't know if I independently came up with this or I've read this somewhere and it went in my subconscious and I'm regurgitating it right now. But you wondered about, like, Pukwudgie as a word even, okay, um, in, you know, Shakespeare, for example, and mm-hmm. you have puck. European figure, you know what I mean. He was a type of uh, fairy, right? You have in Celtic mythology the puka. So this p, vowel k type, word, seems to be, you know, both sides of the water here. With, um, with the same associated intrinsic with meaning. Little elementals or spiritual, you know, little small uh, diminutive little uh, beings, you know, fairies, and which is interesting because the puka is a shapeshifter. He can be large. He can be small. He can be a giant rabbit, or he can be other kinds of form. You know what I mean? So he's a shapeshifter, like a trickster. You know, he's a type of trickster. And um, like I said, I don't know if that's something that came to me, or I just I read that somewhere. And you know, sometimes you don't know where you get stuff after a while when you, write, right, oh, you, know, yeah. you read a lot. And, and then you think you you're thought just it up. you a sponge and, absorbing yeah, everything. Yeah. Yeah. You think you came up with it, and then said, you know, somebody you bump into says, "I told you that ten years ago, dude." In case you're. but um, no, I wondered. Uh, I was I was really interested in the account. Uh, have you guys read the book, The Narrow Land? Have not. That is a book that um, is a folk chronicles of Cape Cod, and she mentions um, Elizabeth um, Renyard I believe it is, um, mentions her her version that she got from a Native American source down in Cape Cod of, of the Pukwajis and uh, and his and the in the battles between Moshop and and Pukwajis, you know, and um, and they sound really uh, like little mischievous, really like they give little they have a lot of magic, a lot of uh, you know a Manitou spirit and uh, that. Even, like, the weakest one is stronger than the, the man's shaman. You know, like, they, they have a lot of uh, abilities and can do things. Because they're battling with Mashop who's a giant, you know, sort of more of a culture god. And um, she, get, she gets into some funny things. One of the things I've never heard mentioned, really, I don't think anywhere else, I might be wrong, um, is that uh, besides being little troll-like things, that they sometimes can take the form of bears or, um, you know, and when someone shoots them, they kind of pull the arrow out of their rump oh, wow. or something and keep running and uh, um, that they can sometimes be almost like a leaf man like a kind of um, have you guys heard accounts like that of a, of a no. Okay. this book mentions almost like if you think of the green man and European type you know the green man uh, kind of a foliage type persona you know
1: I mean I've heard of them being able to, to shift but yeah. not into these um, these kind of classical type figures normally uh, one of the stories one of the first Pukwudgie stories that I ever heard and this comes from years and years ago from the Middleborough-Lakeville area. And I would even say that this probably predates, and I, I'd have to check the dates with Chris, but I would say this probably predates Chris putting anything up on his site about the Pukwudgies, which is really when it started to, to kind of hit the mainstream. Uh, and there was just a, a, a story that all the kids in the town tell about this one house where there's these little bearded, like small troll-type figures that are seen on this property. And I didn't make the connection until later on that what they're talking about is they're talking about puckwudgies, Uh, that it's just kind of a, 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 a modernized version of it. But they would say that if you went to this house and you saw one of them, you know, bad luck would happen to you and, and they would play tricks on you and they would try to invite you into the, onto the property and you, when you got there, you'd be under their spell. And these are stories that I heard from kids that I knew that went to school there and, and just, you know, just the kind of crap that kids talk amongst themselves, but it was based in something else. So, I mean, is that, is a, that in a,
3: Middlebury, you said, or a uh, It was
1: in Lakeville yeah, Lake. where I actually heard it. Now, I'll see if I can find out some more of the details about it. But uh, there's a lot of things that went around uh, that area because I had family that lived there. And I found out things from that area that play into a lot of this research that was probably being put out there before this research was really put out there. So before, we were reading Chris Pittman's sites and Chris Balzano's sites. So, again, it's, I mean, it's I, a nice I, link because yeah. you
3: heard it beforehand before you even knew from the other sources. and. You know, Chris mentions. I w- I wonder if Chris Balzano has probably read The Narrow End because he always mentions the uh, Taipei Wonkas, the the lights along the way that the mm-hmm. that the and that's mentioned in that book. Yeah,
1: Let's I think see. he actually referenced it in the in, in the, the article that he wrote that everybody steals from him. Yeah, <laughs> and he mentioned it in the movie too, I think. You yeah, know, and uh, those
3: lights. I mean, if you think about that, that is just such classic. That is a very European motif, or maybe it's just maybe it is a trickster thing. It's a worldwide thing again, human consciousness type archetype type thing, you know. But uh, to have these little diminutive beings. Who you know could be good to you or could be bad to you, and uh, and they um, they are associated with uh, anomalous uh, lights and swamps and things like that. You know, which sometimes those lights are supposedly have a It a sounds a lot like up. abductions. Is it having the lights and stuff. Yeah. Think about well, it, the mm-hmm. little
0: beings and the lights and being tricked and having all these things done to you.
1: You know where I stand on that. We we've debated this. I never made that kid. That's funny. I know. We've we've debated this numerous times, uh, both on the air and off. Yeah. Where I have I've totally become of the mindset that um, UFO encounters, UFO sightings, abductions, all of this stuff is just our modern boogeyman. The same way that you said last time, the modern fairies. It, that's what they are. They're the that's modern fairies. And I had somebody actually email me this week and ask me, you know, what I thought about UFOs, because this person is terrified. Of UFOs and the idea of an alien visitation. And I said, you know, today's Sighting of Wareham
0: yesterday. Of of a craft? Yep, hanging over four ninety five. String of five lights, V formation as it was coming down the roadway, it flipped up on its side and took off.
1: What time of day was
0: that? Uh, Six o'clock in the evening. Witnessed by Lisa Zarenberg.
1: No, nah. anybody get any video of it yet? Uh, of? I'm
0: in the process of checking.
1: I don't say I'm sure somebody must have uh, today's day and age with you know the cameras and the phones. I I did see the space station the other day too, by the way, which was I'd never seen. If I didn't know
0: what you're looking, what at. I
1: was looking at, I might have questioned what I was seeing too. You you do almost like a um,
3: your, your interpretation is almost like a Carl Jung type thing in a way. You do you're seeing uh, archetypes. Yes, modern phenomena in a mythological, and not meaning mythological like it's fake, mythological in the real sense of mythological right.
1: way. Yeah, and, yeah. and to me, that's what all of the stuff that we're studying is. It's all just modern mythology. And I, I think of myself probably more as a mythologist than I do a paranormal investigator these days. That's a great take. Yeah. And, you know, and I've, always called, I've always referred to Chris Balzano as an analytical folklorist. You know, somebody who takes what we see in today's era and, and puts it into you know, folklore perspective. And that's the way that I've kind of gotten into it. This, this poor woman who was messaging me was terrified because she watched your episode of Monsters <laughs> and Mysteries in America. And she's like, if Moniz has been abducted by aliens, then anybody can be abducted by aliens. And I said, listen. This is just my theory. I said, you can talk to Moniz about it if you want, Uh, and and other people who have actually undergone these experiences. But my theory and my belief is that they're just our modern boogeyman, our modern fairies, and that UFO sightings are a uh, technologically advanced version of spook lights, will-o'-the-wisp, you know, all these things that we see, St. Elmo's fire, all these things that happen that we have previously attributed to being something else, you know, now we're seeing them as UFOs because it's our Perspective that has changed the way that they appear to well, us.
0: Okay, then riddle me this, Batman. Why do videos and cameras show that? Then they they have no uh, no predisposition. I'm, not,
1: I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm just saying that what they are is what was previously believed to be that. I'm not saying that there isn't something there. Okay, I'm okay, just saying that, that it's not a different type of. Entity or consciousness? Okay,
0: the, the way it was saying, the people talk about you know the, the mythology, meaning that it's made up, or you know, um, no, no,
1: no, myth- you can have a mythology about something that's not made up. I mean, you know, there's a mythology is just the uh,
0: what you're defining as mythology. Okay, it, it, well,
1: to me, and I think a lot of people might might have the same. Focus on mythology that you do, but to me, a mythology is just the story that springs up around anything. So okay. it could be based in fact, but it could just be a tall tale that builds up around that fact uh, to to try to get the point across. It's a
0: story where all of the uh, de- uh, factual details have been blurred. It's like
1: a fable. Yeah. You know, the the important yeah. part is the lesson at the end. It doesn't really matter how we get to it. Yeah. Um, sorry, Derek. No, that's you okay. No, that's that's, <laughs> that's fine. But I mean, if that's the case, though, I mean, if and I'm not belittling the experiences that people have. Like I said, I think that there's there's something legitimate happening. It's just the person who is abducted by uh, aliens in today's world is the person that would have you know disappeared down the rabbit hole led by fairies in, right. you know in the 1700s, for example. Right. And that we're just it's a different way that it's presented to us, and it has to be presented to us in a way that is uh, culturally and socially relevant to our times. And uh, relevant, uh, and also has to be something that um, would be scary to us. Yeah. You know, for a fairy to show up and fly around our head, we'd be like, you know, what the hell is this? And we would tr- immediately try to take a cell phone picture of it, uh, maybe kill it, you know, dissect it, categorize it, ship it off to the university, what have you. So our minds have already kind of gone over analytical for what that could be. So now we're being presented something that we can't. Quite fathom and quite understand in a different way. So you guys are all looking at you know, me like I'm. Weird. I would,
3: I'm wondering if like uh, this almost goes back to John Keel a little bit. The kind of idea like you know your Roman legions might have seen a shield in the sky uh, in 1898, and you're in Texas. You'd see a mystery airship uh, in 1958. Right. You'd see a flying saucer, um, and all these things. I mean, and, th- and it's that's, almost like the the sometimes the
1: craft almost reflect the times a little bit. Is that what that's that's one of the first things that got me of that mindset was those airship sightings, uh, you know, and we're talking pre-dirigibles, but when they had those airship sightings, that was kind of what would be the closest they could fathom. And now as we've been able to build modern aircraft, well, what's the next step for us, these superior craft that these ships supposedly have? And, again, I – I think that there's something there. I'm not saying that it's anything anybody's imagining. It's just how it's being presented to us. Some, some sort of other intelligence is making these things available to us. Okay.
0: Uh, I know why you're going with what you're saying, because you're talking about seeing the shields and then seeing the airships and stuff like that. There are, because I've been studying UFOs for many, many decades now, there are recordings of these other types of craft that are, in record, written down as well as drawn. The stories of airships and shields are only the stuff that gets reported because those were the only things that they could describe of that day. They were still, during the uh, Siege of Alexander, they, they saw the blazing shields in the sky. But there were other civilizations nearby that were also seeing these large cigar-shaped craft that they were recording. So, okay, but but they were talking about the shields because, well, I know what the shield looks like. I can describe it. This other thing, I have no idea what to use for this, so I ignore it.
1: Again, it's being put into your frame of reference. Right. And and you're saying that the line could be, is it how it appears to you or is it how your mind processes it? And and I I think that the mind processing it is a big part of how it, how it is. So maybe to some people, yes, it is a shield. You're, you know, the same thing seen by the same person could be a cigar shaped craft to one person could be a home plate shaped craft. Like we see in the Bridgewater triangle document, you know, it's the, the, the basis of it, the origin of it is probably still the same point, but how it's being presented and how it's being processed is different. You can process something differently than I can.
0: Right. We you can know. both see the same car accident and say that, you know, it was this person and you'd say it was the other person who was up But,
1: I mean, even just looking at UFO craft, all right, you have a much more vast knowledge of aircraft and of aircraft design than I ever could have. I, it's something that I've never studied. Flown a few. And I don't know anything about them. I couldn't tell you an F fourteen from you know whatever. I don't even know anything beyond an F fourteen. That's just sure. But I can't tell one from another. It's never something that I've been able to do. You have studied them, so and and for them. Yes. for me, you know, any type of of craft could be uh, advanced. To my knowledge. But to you, you would have to go beyond what you know and and you have a pretty good working knowledge of what type of aircraft are out there that at least yes. you know the public's been made aware of.
0: So you that uh, the public hasn't, yeah.
1: So yours has to be beyond that scope of knowledge. So therefore I might see something that just looks like a bunch of lights in the sky, but you have to see something that comes across completely different. And again, I'm not saying that we didn't there wasn't something for us to see. It's just how we each processed what we saw. All right. You we're know, getting off topic, you know, uh, No, Just I don't to, think to, so at all. Well, we can tie
3: this right back to, to the Massachusetts stuff, because when you get into these mystery airships, and I, I don't know if the, you know, you guys or the listeners have, have looked into this, um, and I'm, I'm wishing I could remember all the details, but there was a case uh, in Massachusetts. Mount around,
0: Washington. They have a photograph of it, large. Uh, well, I was going to say
3: there was a whole mystery airship thing um, in Massachusetts around 1909. And they had a, a, an inventor in Worcester. Uh, I think his last name was Tillinghast. And this guy uh, claimed that he was He's flying a ship yeah. from from Worcester to Boston. There were lights seen around different towns. Uh, I think even maybe towns towards around, but definitely in Massachusetts. And I believe what happened. This is very much a trickster type story that uh, he said he was going to reveal some stuff to the public. And I think he he might have been in touch with other. Forces and stuff, and when he when he went to show what he had, he he couldn't come up with the goods. But yet he claimed to be the guy who was doing these, you know, these airship runs, and people were seeing things with the searchlight. And it was very much like what was going on down down, you know, in Texas and stuff. But uh, a little bit later, nineteen oh nine, but then the the sighting stopped. It was just one of these uh, brief periods in time where, and uh, I think he was um, deluded by other. I think that he, you know. He was like a disinformation agent? Indirectly, not meaning <laughs> yeah, to, yes. Yeah. Yes, I think like that's what actually happened. And uh, you know who i got to give credit, as I, I read about that years ago, but who kind of, I think, set me straight a little bit about it was uh, Chris Pittman actually was talking about that. I saw him a couple weeks ago, and i got to thank Chris for kind of telling me that aspect of it, because I think he's right.
1: So, yeah, you know, and I think a lot of these uh, things that we're discussing here tonight about, the lens of how we view things plays into a lot of the work that you've done again we mentioned earlier in the program about looking at a lot of this through you know, the white European lens and uh, we, we can't really get ourselves into the mindset of the Native Americans because our version of Native American history is what's been told to us by the winners essentially uh, so we, we're, we have a, a basic inherent disconnect uh, to a lot of these sites and to a lot of these things that you research Uh, One of the issues that we have now is there seems to be, uh, especially in the paranormal community, there seems to be uh, an emphasis on getting those connections back and being able to kind of, quote, unquote, be at one with the natives and the native history. But the problem, again, with that is we're creating, and we discussed this at Lizzie Borden's last week, myself and Jeff Belanger, we're creating the narrative based on what we have found So now we're hearing a lot of, you know, whatever data is gathered when we go out to investigate some of these sites from a paranormal perspective, we're using that to kind of tell the story of the people. Uh, Being, uh, you know, an archaeologist, being an anthropologist, how do you differentiate then the truth from the story that we're telling now, if you get what I I mean? I I don't think you can anymore. Mm -hmm. I think there was
3: such, um, the, the Native American culture like around here was really, Decimated. These people were forced to live like white people and wear white people's clothes. And, right. And the culture was so decimated, and the religion was frowned upon so much, the, the religious mindset, that, uh, I mean, as an example, just a, a concrete example, is I, I think I'm correct in saying that, that the word Pukwudgie itself is not like a Wampanoag word for this thing. We don't know, I think, that the people, that they had their own word for it, and that sometimes Native American culture around here has actually amalgamated other Indian life, like whether it be Plains Indian or Indian stuff in, in the Iroquois Federation, that it, that they might not even know that the natives around here, I don't think even, the, the word has been lost is what I'm trying to say. Right. The actual word for Pakwaji in this area of the world, we now use the word Pakwaji, but Pakwaji I believe comes from, a, from an entirely different tribe as a word. And so it's just like, that's how decimated the culture is. There's such a, You use the word disconnect, I think it's entirely appropriate.
1: There, it's, there seems to be a lot of that, uh, and we, we discussed, uh, we had there was the gentleman who wrote the book Iroquois Supernatural. We had them on a few years ago to discuss their research into the Iroquois nations. And a lot of what happens here and what is the native history of here comes from there. And it's not because there was that cross-culture aspect between the tribes, but it's because it's been adopted as being the history. And so, yeah, Puckwaji is probably the word that when a Wampanoag of today wants to discuss these figures, he's going to use that word, having no... Original emphasis uh, for that word. The The actual word was lost. I mean, the, the the culture was completely, almost completely obliterated.
3: Which is such tragedy. I mean, we'll never go back. We'll never be able to make that connection.
1: And it's it's we're able less and less. You know, you 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 encounter people when you travel around the country. I'm full blooded Cherokee. You know, I'm I'm full blooded what have you. But you can't really find full blooded Wampanoags anymore because the culture has been so diluted, and because now we see people who are just embracing what might be a small percentage of their heritage, Uh, and and they're taking that on as being the most important part of their identity in order to keep it alive. Which you know I understand and respect, but. Again, you're not getting the same, uh, the same history behind it as you would with some of these other tribes oh, across yeah, the country. I mean,
3: de- those Plains Indians have much more of a continuity to for the, the old
1: times. I mean, I, I, I think d- that's true to say. Y- you probably know better than I do, but by the time, you know, those tribes are reaching the point where they're being sent down the Trail of Tears, for example, you know, there's already very few Wampanoags left in this area to begin with. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, do you have any
3: time for a couple tidbits from the? We have about four minutes. Four minutes. Okay. Last time I was here, I think you asked me, uh, "What do you What do you got for some good cases? Derek? Some bizarre things from Massachusetts?" And I, I think we talked about Hoover, the talking seal, mm-hmm. up in the New England Aquarium. And I think we talked about, oh, I'm trying to think back, but you asked me about some 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 real good ones. Um, and uh, oh, I talked about the uh, the house that rained inside in Methuen, mm-hmm. the Poltergeist stuff. But uh, a couple of things that uh, I wanted to tell the viewers, uh, the listeners. Uh, that I thought were pretty good. Um, in Charles Turk Robinson's um, *New England Ghost Files*, there's a great story about this older couple that owned a pharmacy in the '70s. And when they would come in in the morning, they would be prescriptions filled out for non-existent customers. And the, you know, the wife's looking at the husband like, "Did you fill this out? Like, who is this?" And he's looking at her like, "And you know, if you're the only two people, it's a mom and pop type operation." And uh, so if the listeners want to check into, uh, that's a great book, Charles Tork Robinson's. Uh, it's
1: getting a little easier to find. Yeah. There, there are more a, copies are popping up on eBay. That book will make you, if you don't believe in ghosts, by the end of that book, you will. Um,
3: another thing I thought was pretty good was I didn't mention last time was I have a case from um, uh, John Zepka, uh, a beekeeper out in, uh, I think it was North Adams, Mass in 1954. When he died, the bees went to his funeral. Really? And it sounds like such a bizarre story, That's but then you get these other corresponding stories like over in England and, and whatnot.
0: Well, scientifically, I can understand why that would make sense.
3: The chemi- chemical thing? Yeah,
0: they were following the chemical pheromones. He's in constant contact with them and constantly moving the queen around and things like that, so the bees would follow the scent.
3: But you know what's wild, if you guys look into this, is there's this whole bee-like death connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I got a case, too, in um, 1966. Um, it was This comes from a Ripley's Believe It or Not. Book, believe it or not, uh, yeah. where in, a, yeah, uh, I in I think it was St. Francis Cemetery, some cemetery in Taunton, where uh, these wasps, you know, cousins to bees, uh, made like a beehive hairdo on a statue that <laughs> so perfectly matched the coloration and style of the existing sculpture that people didn't notice it at first. Wow. And this, this, you know, Greek goddess, or I don't think it's a religious figure, I actually, think it's almost like a more of a Greco-Roman-looking thing, but she had a beehive hairdo that was made by wasps. And there's actually this folk tradition in Europe, and also in America now, of uh, when someone important dies, like the master of the house dies, the telling of the bees, you have to like, put black crepe paper over the bees, otherwise they'll fly away. And uh, in Pembroke, Mass., there is a library. That uh, It's the former library. Now there's a new library behind it, but the, I think it's now a senior center or something. But the old library in Pembroke had a bee on top. It's the only library in New England, maybe Massachusetts or maybe New England, that has a bee on top, you know, for spelling bees and things like that. Mm-hmm. And across the street is a cemetery, of course, diagonally across the street. So there's this whole, I've been researching this sort of bee. Uh, you know, when you think about it, in the Egyptian tombs, they had honey that you can still,
1: you know, still eat. It's, it was uh, in Well, the, the image
0: up. of the bee is also used in their alphabet in hieroglyphics.
1: Well, you guys can keep researching the bees. I'll leave that up to you guys because I'm afraid of them. Uh, ghosts, I'm fine with. Bees, you know, not did so we, much. Did
3: we get into the, the, the clown uh, scare there? Oh, no. we're
1: going to have to save that for next time. Oh, okay, well, we that's, are...
3: that's, just go look into Lauren Coleman. You'll you'll come uh, across that. And, probably... and
1: Chris has written extensively about it, too, Chris yes, Bolzano. But I think so. that's because he's afraid of clowns. Uh, that about does it for this week's program. We want to thank Derek Unn for coming in with us. And you can check out his website, Amazing Massachusetts, linked up right on SpookySouthCoast.com. Also, again, we'll be back next Saturday night. Uh, we will be discussing True Crime Paranormal. With the girls of Paranormal Expedition, the ladies, I should say, of Paranormal Expeditions, and uh, we'll have Stephanie Burke in here alongside, as well as our co-host. And if you have any questions, any thoughts, you want to get to us in the course of the week, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast or you can also uh, email. I am sorry, you can also follow us on Twitter at Spooky SC. That's the other way that you can get a hold of us as well. Uh, so we want to thank everybody. Until next week, we want you all to stay spooktacular.